Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing of living in this country. We pray for our leaders, all of our leaders, that their hearts would be turned to you, to give them wisdom in this world to do the things that would glorify you, that would lead to justice, that would lead to freedom. Father, we pray for our city. We pray for those who are in need in our city. And I pray you would open our hearts and our minds and help us to see the opportunities to serve. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, there's the number to text your questions. Um, we are, I'm going to do a short recap of one of the key themes from the last lesson, but we are literally in the middle of the gospel. What we've seen, keep this in mind as we go through, what we saw in the first part of the gospel of Mark, remember what I'm asking is for you to step back and kind of forget what you know about Jesus and let's see what, you know, what does Mark want to paint for us? How does he want to show us Jesus by picking out some of the incredible number of things Jesus did. Well, in the first half, he pointed out a lot of miracles. Mark has a ton of miracles. He really wanted to show us the power of Jesus. He healed diseases. He cast out demons. He even had power over nature, over the created universe. And so you get this picture of Jesus being literally the Son of God in power. When we get to this part, we're going to turn just a little bit. Next week in our lesson, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. So chapters 11 through 16, those six chapters of the 16 chapters in Mark are all about Jerusalem. 9 and 10, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the story's going to turn just a little bit. You won't see so many miracles now. Mark's established that. And he's going to bring in a different perspective on Jesus. Well, last week, I wanted to hit this again just because this is such a modern topic. We talked about the Pharisees questioning Jesus, asked him for a sign. He said, this is chapter 8, we're in 9 and 10 this week. He said, you're not going to get a sign. And so, when he got in the boat, starts to go across, he says this, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And what he's saying, I'm underlining that, because yeast is used in positive or negative ways. But yeast is, I mean, what a graphic representation of teaching, of ideas. They spread, and they spread, and you can't see them spread. And so what he's warning them about, they think he's talking about bread. But we talked about how what he's saying, and he tells them, listen, I can make bread anytime I want. What I'm warning you about are the ideas of Herod and the Pharisees. And we used this thing called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Now, John Wesley, this, is a West, this church is in the Wesleyan tradition. That's one of the reasons I want to talk about John Wesley. But I also want to talk about this because I admire John Wesley's approach to the scriptures. John Wesley didn't have a quadrilateral, but in the 20th century, somebody came up with this idea. And it's accurate in some sense, but it was really more a hierarchy. John Wesley said, the most important thing is scripture. He said famously, I am a man of one book. Now, he's widely read, very educated. I'm a man of one book. Why the Bible? We don't worship the Bible. The Bible is the revealed word of God. So John Wesley, scripture was number one. Herod, now let me do the Pharisees first. Pharisees took the traditions of men and they made them number one. And so what he's saying is, is 
this is what we now call legalism. In other words, that you need to follow these traditions in order to be acceptable to God. Put tradition above the scripture. Remember the lesson about the Pharisees and how they would get around the scripture, the Old Testament. We study and we follow the New Covenant, the New Testament. But they would get around by, remember they had this thing called Korban, remember? Jesus challenges them and said, you know, the scripture says take care of your parents, but you guys have found a loophole where you can say, love to take care of you, but can't sell my Mercedes for you. I donated it to the temple, but I still get to use it. In other words, he's saying your traditions are, uh, you've put the traditions above scripture and you've undermined scripture. Herod, on the other hand, was what we call license. And what Herod did was he put Greco-Roman reasoning, if you will, in other words, the Greco-Roman approach to life. And by the way, all these are very prominent today as well. I just put different labels on them and you'd recognize this today. Greco-Roman thinking was that by studying nature, now they also had their gods and they had uh, really taken natural processes and ideas and they had personified them into their gods. But basically, they felt like that you could figure out with your brain everything you need to know about the universe, everything you need to know about morality. By the way, that's a big discussion right now amongst uh, people who are theists, people that believe in a God, and people who do not. And the question is, can you develop a morality, some basic sense of what's right, what's wrong, on the basis of reason? There are some people who would argue yes, and others would argue no. I would argue that 2,000 years of history, really all of recorded history says, absolutely not. But Herod, was very secular. This is what we call secular in, in our uh, society. Secular means that you don't, okay, this, I'm just gonna shade this a little bit, but basically what we mean when we say secular is that you don't believe that there's anything outside of our experience or our reason or our observation. And you do not see a spiritual realm or an afterlife In other words, what you see is what you've got. That's kind of a secular way of thinking, very Greco-Roman way of thinking. Then the experience, so this is what happens if you put humanity, humanism, secular humanism, exactly that. And the Greeks, uh, and then following them the Romans, but really the Greeks, they were the originators of secular humanism. Humanity is the standard by which everything in the universe will be measured. Then experience, this really has come, become very popular today. This, in Christian circles, we tend to call this liberalism. Not just trying to slap labels on people, but fundamentally when you're talking about liberal Christian denominations, you're pretty much talking, I would argue, that you have replaced the authority of Scripture with something else, and that something else is usually your personal human experience or emotions. So you see this happening today just like it was happening in Jesus' time. And so these four elements, now John Wesley made this a harmonious thing. He said, scripture is true. 
That's the essence of being a, a follower of Jesus Christ, is he, who he said he was, can he do what he said he could do, and are the words that he revealed to us, are those things true? If you believe that, that's John Wesley said that's true. He said tradition should support that. In other words, tradition should reinforce the truth of the scripture. He said experience should reinforce the tradition and the truth of the scripture. And I can, let me give you a really positive way to use experience. It's this, making your heart feel what your head knows to be true, as opposed to vice versa. In other words, when you read in the scripture the truth that God so loved the world, and that includes you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts in him should never perish, you know that to be true. You, you trust in God. You trust that the scripture, that the revealed words of God are true. Experience is preaching that to your heart. And even when you don't feel worthy, even when you don't feel lovable, you know it to be true. Let your experience, your emotions mirror that. That's what John Wesley's saying. And then finally, reason. My argument is Christians should be scientists. I don't mean Christian scientists. I mean, Christians can be scientists. Why? I think if you follow the truth far enough, you'll find God. And I think we should be all about pursuing the sciences, pursue learning about our universe. We have no fear of what science might find. Now, there are times when science hypothesizes things with which we do not agree. There's times when you have bad science. I mean, it's like bad religion. You can have bad science. But doing science right, Christians ought to be all about that. And Wesley said that reason will bolster your faith. It's one of the big tenets of this church and many churches is you don't have to check your brain at the door. Let's reason together. We believe reason will support the trust and the faith that we have. Okay, that's getting preachy. But basically, that's an important concept. And Jesus really made the Pharisees and the Herodians both camps. And they didn't like each other, but they hated Jesus more. So this is part of what got Jesus into trouble with them. Well, as we open in chapter 9, you get this really interesting uh, event called the transfiguration or the transformation. Let me read this to you. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. He led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them, transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Mark, who's writing down what Peter's preaching, Peter's being remarkably honest here. He did not know what to say. They were so scared. By the way, do you remember that theme that's running through Mark? Every time the disciples or anyone sees the power of God in action, remember when he calmed the storm, it said they were scared to death. Like, who is this that can even command nature? They're afraid. What they're seeing is so overwhelming that their reaction is they're fearful. They're in the presence of God. And that is how people react in the presence of God. In other words, this familiar God is my buddy kind of a thing is not a very scriptural idea. God is so much greater than we are, which makes his love and grace 
even more powerful to us. So anyway, he's scared to death and he says something stupid. But then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Remember that, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Well, I know you're thinking, boy, these guys are more dense than I thought. They knew what rising from the dead meant. They just didn't understand what it had to do with Jesus. In those days, they thought, not everybody thought this, but the disciples did, Pharisees did, that when you died, at some point, the day of judgment, when God would set things right in the world, just very much like what you and I believe, is that the dead will be raised, some to punishment, some to reward. In other words, there would be a resurrection of the dead. They had no concept whatsoever about Jesus himself rising from the dead. And so that's what this means, is they understood it as some theological concept, but they really couldn't wrap their brain around you, what, what are you actually talking about? You keep talking about you're going to die, you're going to rise from the dead. Man, we do not understand this part. And so they didn't understand that. Then they said, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written it is that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So let's talk about this story for a minute, because there are just some interesting parallels here. Why Elijah and Moses? Where were they? What's really going on in this story? Well, first of all, let's talk about where we are. Blank map. Never seen a blank map. I love a blank map. Let's fill it in. Okay, so where are they? Some people think they are here. This is Sea of Galilee, right? Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, down here by the Dead Sea. Actually, it's a little over there. But anyway, down here by the Dead Sea, Jerusalem. But right here is Mount Tabor, and it is possible they were at Mount Tabor. Up here is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is really interesting. Israel's an interesting country, by the way. This part down here, you know why we never talk about it? Because it's desert. There's nothing there to talk about. And so it's desert down here. Mount Hermon is a ski resort. I mean, this country is not very big, and they've got every ecosystem you could possibly want. Most scholars think they were on Mount Hermon, and it's... It's a mountain, and you can see into Lebanon, you can see into Syria, uh, which were kind of Lebanon and Syria in those days as well. So it probably happened on one of these two mountains. So he's still up in the north, up in the Galilee area. Next week, he's going to start a process, a trip toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. And you'll see the storyline change a little bit. But probably Mount Hermon or Mount, or, uh, Mount Tabor. By the way, as long as we got this map, this is, and I know this is really elementary, but sometimes uh, it's just, it helps to see this. This is the West Bank today. This is actually a modern, uh, more of a modern map. That area right there is the West Bank. Why is it called the West Bank? It's on the west side of the Jordan River. It's on the west bank of the Jordan River. This is the area that today is uh, governed 
by Israel, but also by a Palestinian authority as well. Down here, this is the Gaza Strip. So that's Gaza. Today, Gaza is governed by Hamas, and Israel simply has a wall around it. You can go into the West Bank. I mean, you can transit the West Bank. You can visit places in the West Bank. Not so much in the Gaza Strip. At least, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. But that is Gaza. And then this has been in the news a lot lately. This is the Golan Heights. It's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And up until uh, 1967, it belonged to Syria. But now it is uh, Israel's territory. And it's been in the news because Donald Trump acknowledged that Israel has the right to the Golan Heights, which is something no American president has done. So anyway, that's kind of where, where the country is right now. But you notice in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has pretty much stayed in the north. Now, he's not trying to give you, if you read the other Gospels, you're going to realize he's been back and forth to Jerusalem some. Mark's not saying he didn't. He just doesn't want to tell you about that. I mean, you've got 16 chapters. You've got to fit in what you want to tell. And so he's been pretty much up here in the north. So that's where he is. That's what's going on. Why Elijah and Moses? This is really interesting. If you, when the Jews talk about the Old Testament, they divide it into three parts. But in the scriptures, when you hear them referring to the Old Testament, they'll talk about the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The law, first five books of the Old Testament, called the Torah, the Pentateuch, it is the law of Moses. Got all the 613 commandments in it. Then you have some other writings, but you also have all the prophets. I mean, you've got what we call prophets, which would be like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all those minor prophets. They also consider like Joshua, the book of Joshua as a prophet. So they would consider those people speaking on behalf of God. Well, in Deuteronomy, that's in uh, the fifth book of uh, the Torah, it says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. Well, they always thought this is the Messiah. Makes perfect sense. What did Moses do? I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on this because I want you to see what's happening and why Elijah and Moses are there. Because Jesus is going to fulfill their ministry. The Old Testament isn't separate from the New Testament. It led up to the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled the law in the Old Testament. He followed the law of Moses. But he said, I didn't come to abolish this law. I came to fulfill it. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the Jews read this, and for 1,400 years, they thought, that's a messianic prophecy. In other words, what did Moses do? Moses came from God. He was sent from God, and he came to God's people, and he confronted mean old Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, and he freed them and took them back to the promised land. That's the story, that's the Exodus motif, that's the story of Moses, basically. So they thought, you're gonna get another Moses. In other words, when you are oppressed and enslaved like you were in Egypt, God's gonna send another prophet like Moses, and you need to listen to him because he's going to free you from your slavery and oppression. Well, these Jews, actually most of their history, they've been living in, oppressed by somebody, but right now they're oppressed by the Romans. So what are they looking for? 
looking for this prophecy to come true. They're looking for a new Moses, if you will, somebody that will come and free them from the oppressor who is enslaving them. That's part of why they're looking for a new king, somebody who will come and militarily throw off the rule of the Romans. So in a sense, Jesus is the new Moses. He fulfills that prophecy. Elijah. <clears throat> Elijah was a prophet. Moses, think of Moses like 1400 BC. Think of Elijah about 850 BC. So the prophecy in Malachi. Malachi is a minor prophet, last book in your Old Testament. And it is basically probably one of the last books written. Probably written around 400 BC. So Malachi written in 400 BC, you hear nothing from God until the time of Christ. Well, what does Malachi say? Kind of his parting words. In chapter 4, he goes, Oh, by the way, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Think judgment. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Else I will come and strike the land with a curse. In other words, there is judgment to be had. So what was Elijah's story? What did Elijah do in about 850 BC? If you remember the story of Elijah, he comes to, he's one of the prophets of God. King named Ahab married a girl named Jezebel. Not a nice girl. She comes from Baal worshipers. She basically gets her husband to put an altar of Baal inside the temple in Jerusalem. She starts to kill the prophets of God. She starts to put the prophets of Baal on the government payroll. It is government-subsidized religion. She's going to stamp out this worship of Yahweh. She's going to stamp out the Torah. She's going to stamp out worshiping God. We're going to worship the Baals. And so she's having some success with this. And if you remember that great story on Mount Carmel, God says to Elijah, says, hey, I want you to go talk to Ahab. He goes, I'd rather not. And God says, yeah, go talk to Ahab and tell him that his time of reckoning is coming, right? And so there's no rain in the land for how long? Three years, which is also an interesting number because that's about how long Jesus' ministry lasted. So he goes to Ahab and he says, hey, we're going to have a throwdown uh, between me, prophets of Baal. You got 400 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. She was Baal's wife. And so you bring them together and it's just me, poor old me. Elijah kind of exaggerated that a little bit. He kind of had a pity party going, but bottom line, he's the only guy that shows up, right? And so they get on Mount Carmel and they have this throwdown. And he says, you guys, you know, put your, put your uh, sacrifice out there. Just don't light it on fire. And you call on Baal. He sends fire down. We're good with that. All the people said, hey, that's a good idea. So they try, they try, they try. Nothing happens. So then Elijah says, you people come over here to me. And he puts his sacrifice down. He pours water over it. Remember this story? It's a powerful story. Pours water over it. Pours water over it again. Pours water over it again. Says a prayer. Fire comes down. Consumes the whole thing. I mean, just toast. It totally consumes it. And all the people go, okay, we've decided we're going to worship God. Right? They turn back to God. Elijah went to a people who had turned away I mean, Jezebel was certainly helping them and certainly tempting them, but they had turned away from God. I mean, right before he did that, he said, who do you guys believe in, Baal or God? And they go, I don't know. You know, I, 
have to see. I don't, how are the polls running? You know, and so they have this and they all decide, hey, you know what? We've always been for God. And so he turns the hearts of Israel back to God. That's what he's talking about. He will turn the hearts of the Father. So he says, before the Messiah comes, and this is understood as a messianic prophecy by the Jews, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come back. And Elijah's going to do what he did before in the sense that he's going to preach and he's going to turn the hearts back to God. Well, if you think about it, you've got Moses throwing off the oppression of the people. You've got Elijah coming and turning their hearts back to God. That is the essence of the law and the prophets. The law points to Jesus. Paul is going to say in the New Testament that the law was a school teacher, if you will. It was a guardian to bring you to Christ. Elijah and all the prophets were talking about the hope of the Messiah coming and would he find faithful people in Israel. So the transfiguration's got more going on than just a, wow, we're scared to death, this is unbelievable what's happening here. Moses and Elijah are symbolic of what Jesus is going to do. You can understand Jesus' ministry as both of their ministries together. He really is going to take people who are in slavery, but people who are in slavery to sin and who are dead forever, and he's going to lead them to the promised land. Through the cross and the resurrection, he's going to make it possible that we will not die. We will live forever, and we will be with God in the ultimate promised place. Does that make sense? So he is the bigger, truer, better Moses. He's also coming, and what did he preach? Remember when Mark starts his gospel? Jesus went around, he starts preaching to all these Jewish villages, and what does he say? Repent. Repent is just a word that means turn around, go a different direction. Quit doing what you're doing and start doing this. Repent because the kingdom of God is here. So he's turning people's hearts, literally, from one direction to another direction. He is the new, the true, the better, the bigger Elijah as well. And so both of them are precursors to Jesus' ministry. I can see you're enthralled by this. It's really cool that God has done this and brought these stories together. And here's Jesus speaking to them because he is the fulfillment. He is going to play out the ultimate Moses and the ultimate Elijah. That's why those two. That's why not somebody else, because they're representative of God's story. Okay, so that's the uh, transfiguration. They left that place, and they passed through Galilee. Now you're going to see an interesting theme. There's several little stories here that have to do with pride and have to do with children. Watch. He left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Why? He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. And he's thinking, man, these guys are dense. I've got to work with these guys a little bit. So he's teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man, and by the way, that's a messianic term from the book of Daniel, from the prophet Daniel, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? I mean, this has got to be bad. I mean, just stop and think for a minute. 
It's sort of like, have you ever had, when you were growing up, did your mom ever say, so what were you doing today? And you go, how much does she know? What happened at school today? Dreaded words. It's like, has she gotten a call? Or is she just faking me out? So I'll confess, right? Well, how bad would that be with Jesus? What were you guys talking about on the road? It's like, he probably knows, guys. We're caught, right? And so they said, they kept quiet. Because on the way, they'd been arguing about who was the greatest disciple. I mean, they really don't get this. Who is the greatest disciple? And, you know, one of them is saying, Peter, you said something stupid on the mountain. You're probably not in the front runner now, you know. And somebody else is arguing about who's, who's uh, the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the 12. He said, if any of you want to be first, you must be the last. And the greatest among you will be the servant of all of you. This is where we get the whole concept of servant leadership from. And will be the servant of all. And he took a little child and had the child stand among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is important because children were invisible. It, think about our culture where children, honestly, in America, children are in the running for the new gods of our world. I mean, we are such a child-centric culture that children have essentially become an idol for us. Totally different in those days. Children, you know, should be seen rarely and never heard. I mean, for one thing, the infant mortality rate was very high. And so, I mean, that was heartbreaking then just as it is now, but it was just more common then. And children had not very much value because they weren't very useful until they got to be 12 or 13 and they could work in the fields or they could do something to help. And so children were just not what they are in our society. We put children number one, they put children at the very bottom. So what is Jesus saying? He said, you guys are worried about who is the greatest. Who's going to exercise power? He says, you see this kid? They go, yeah, I don't even know whose kid that is. And so they go, yeah, I know. He said, anybody who welcomes the least powerful and anybody who serves the least powerful amongst these has done so for me. In other words, quit trying to be up here and decide you're going to go serve the people who need it in this culture. That is a uniquely, uniquely Christian idea. It was not an idea in that culture. It's not actually an idea in our culture. If you ever hear that idea, it is because the Judeo-Christian ethic has influenced our society. This is not Darwinian. This is not normal. This is not natural. This is a uniquely Christian idea that the greatest among you will be the servant of you all. Then he goes on, he says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin. So now you're thinking he's not necessarily talking about children causing children to sin, but causing children are also a symbol of trust. They're naive. They're not devious. I know some of you have toddlers, you go, trust me, they're devious. But seriously, children are a symbol in, in our culture, just like they were, that this is a childlike trust, a childlike faith. You know, my kids used to think I was like a soccer god. I could tell them anything when I was coaching soccer when they were eight years old. It lasted until they were 11, and then they realized, maybe old dad doesn't know as much as I thought he did. But up to that point, they're so trusting. They'll do whatever you tell them to do. He's using children as a sign of pure trust, just purity, not being devious or, or divisive. And so he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
I think, and most commentators would agree, he's talking about people who trust in Christ, but maybe who just lack knowledge. Anybody who leads them astray, he says, it would be better if you were thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around your neck. I want to show you what a millstone is. There are different kinds of millstones. A millstone is what you grind flour with. You grind a lot of stuff with a millstone, but you're grinding things up. And there are different Greek words for different things. I mean, you could have just a home kind of a model. That word is talking about that. That round thing is a millstone. And so what you'd do is you'd put whatever you were grinding, you know, whether it be olives, be grain, whatever, you'd put it in that uh, receptacle, you would hook a donkey up to this thing, uh, and they would go round and round, and they would grind, and you'd be taking the flour out, you'd be putting some more grain in. That thing weighs a lot. I mean, it is a massive stone. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a millstone, that round thing. He said, if you cause one of these little ones, if you cause one of these innocent people who trust in me to sin, it would be better if you just tied a millstone around your neck and jumped in the sea. In other words, you, it is a great injustice and a great sin to Jesus to lead people astray. This is where, this is a little bit of a sideline. This is, uh, for Terry, this is an important teaching of Jesus. It is possible for us to disagree about doctrines and uh, different denominations, think different things, they understand the Bible differently, uh, and you can be wrong and still be faithful. It is possible to be wrong. Some might say there's going to be a thousand-year reign before the last day of judgment. Somebody else will say that's not the way I read it. I read it that there won't be a thousand-year reign. There'll just be a judgment. Okay, somebody's wrong, but it's not doesn't make you unfaithful. This is a dividing line for Jesus. If you are causing people who trust in Jesus to sin, that's a big deal with Jesus. The second thing that's a big deal is he's going to turn now and say, not just causing people to sin, but sin in our own lives. Listen to this. This is a radical thing to say. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Anybody who thinks Jesus didn't believe in hell, this is going to be a tough passage. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So you notice three times here he talks about uh, the idea of hell and the idea of basically cutting off. Is he talking about this literally? No, this is hyperbole, although... There was one great Christian scholar back in about 250 AD who took this very literally. But I can't tell you that story because this is a PG class. Anyway, so he's not saying cut your hand off, cut your feet off. What he's saying is there's nothing that you're holding on to that is worth going to hell for. In other words, if there's something that causes you to sin, cut it out of your life. Put it away because nothing is worth going to hell. And he's talking about judgment. He's talking about the reality of hell. By the way, this is an interesting word. There are several words for hell that are translated hell in the New Testament. The most common one 
I, th you know, I think the most common one is Hades. And it is a Greek word, and think of that as the place where dead people go. Okay, not pleasant. Think of, think of basically going somewhere and all you've got are three TV channels in black and white and it's not HD. It's kind of like that. It's like where you go after you die, but it's not that pleasant. You can't get ESPN. You, know, you can't get anything. So that's Hades. This is a different word. This word is Gehenna. Very Jewish thing to say. It's a Hebrew word. It splits in two, and Geh means valley. And the name of the valley is Hinnom. So Gehenna is the valley of Hinnom. Why is that important? Aerial view. Okay, we're looking down on Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem, big J. Jerusalem has a valley here that goes up, 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 and this is the Mount of Olives. It's got a valley over here, which we'll talk about some other time. Nobody really cares about that valley. But there's a valley at the southern end that goes down, and this is the Hinnom Valley. In between the Old and New Testament, so from like 400 B.C. to the time of Jesus, the valley of Hinnom became the city dump. In ancient times, I mean, back in Old Testament times, they used to do some child sacrifices there, not because God wanted them to, but there were certain uh, Israelite kings who followed other gods and sacrificed children, uh, which still happens today, actually. But they did it in the Valley of Hinnom. Well, in Jesus' time, that was the city dump. In other words, think about their sewage system. I know you're thinking, I came to study Mark. Are you going to talk to me about sewage system? Okay, they don't have a sewage system. But you know what their sewage system is? Run a bunch of water through the city and let it run down into the Valley of Hinnom. We'll just get rid of it. So in the Valley of Hinnom, you have dead animals. You got, it's just, oh, it's awful. It's way worse than our dumps. And there were fires that kind of burned there at times. And it was just considered a terrible place. It became a metaphor for hell. I mean, like the worst place you can imagine, the Valley of Hinnom with all the sewage, all the dead, decaying corpses, things like that. And so he's talking about Gehenna. He's talking about the Valley of Hinnom, and he's using it as a metaphor for hell, meaning when judgment comes, there's going to be the place of reward, the promised land, and there's going to be the place of death and decay and darkness and ugliness and everything unpleasant. So Jesus is not really talking a lot about hell per se. I mean, like, here's what it's going to be like. There'll be a guy with a pitchfork, and he's going to come by and, you know, stab you a few times. He doesn't really talk about hell like what will happen. He gives you images of hell. In other words, this is the counterpart to being in the Garden of Eden with God. So he's saying here basically that there's nothing you're holding on to. There's no sin that's so pleasant. There's nothing in your life that isn't worth cutting off to avoid hell or to be with God. Powerful lesson that he's making uh, to his disciples here. Okay? So people were bringing little children to Jesus. Notice as we go through this, you're seeing this theme. Now we're not doing miracles uh, so much. I mean, I guess obviously the transfiguration is a, a miraculous thing to see. But now he's beginning to teach about leadership, about who's great, who's not great. He's using children as innocence, the innocence of faith. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. I mean, stop and think about this. Why is this story there? I mean, you only have a scroll that's so long, and you're going to write down things that Peter is preaching. Why tell this story? 
This seems to me like something that you wouldn't necessarily add in, but let's see why it's there. When Jesus saw the kids coming and the disciples pushing him away, said, take your brats out of here, teacher's busy, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. So what is he saying? He's trying to teach his disciples about faith. He's trying to teach us about faith. That faith is the kind of childlike trust. It's that kind of I'm all in kind of trust. It's that I trust you no matter what kind of trust. He's talking, he's going to give a lot of examples about what faith is, what the kingdom of God is. Remember, he said uh, the kingdom of God is like uh, yeast. In other words, a little faith goes a long way. A little faith grows he said the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price and you find it, you sell everything else to get it. That's kind of like that gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. In other words, the kingdom of God is worth more than anything else you have. In other words, he's using a lot of metaphors here. But the one with children is really powerful metaphor for his disciples. And here's why. He can see that they have a knowledge problem. He's not so worried about the knowledge problem. They don't really understand what's going to happen. He's like, yeah, you will after it's done. So their knowledge problem is not his big issue. His big issue with them is their pride problem. That's something he can't really deal with. And so them arguing about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus saying you need to be more like a little child, takes a child here and says this is the kind of faith you need to have. You need to quit worrying about power. And then... This happens next. You can see they do have a knowledge problem, but they've got a big pride problem. After he has taught them that, look what happens. So they were on their way to Jerusalem. So now the turn has come, and he set his face to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. They're astonished because, Jesus, you realize that all those guys in Jerusalem said they're going to kill you. The Herodians are going to kill you. The Pharisees are going to kill you. I think we should stay here. Jesus says, no, we need to go up to Jerusalem. This isn't recorded here in the Gospel of Mark, but it is recorded in another Gospel where this is where Thomas says, well, guess we'll just all go die with him. You know, in other words, I guess we'll stick with him. So they do have a little bit of trust in Jesus. They don't have much knowledge, but they got a big pride problem. Look at this. Then James and John... Brothers, the sons of Zebedee came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In other words, this is a Hebrew way of saying, we'd like to ask you a favor. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So what are they saying? He wants to be attorney general. I want to be secretary of state. And he's like, we want to sit at your right and left hands when you come into your kingdom, in your glory. They're still thinking. they got a knowledge problem. They're still thinking, hey, he's going to overthrow the Romans. Don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to overthrow the Romans. And then he's going to have his kingdom. And James and John are like, hey, and we're going to be number two and number three in the kingdom. So Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink, the cup of wrath that he'll be drinking, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, very well, you will drink the cup I drink. Yes, indeed. 
This uh, very James dies first, by the way. This James gets killed by Herod. I'm talking now after the resurrection of Jesus. He's, uh, he's the first one of the disciples, as, as best we know, to be killed, to be killed for his faith. He said, well, in fact, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Needless to say, when the other ten heard about this, they became really angry with James and John. Jesus calls them together again and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, he's talking about power. It's all about power. Same's true here. Who's at the top has what? Power. Those who lead lord it over other people. They exercise their power over other people. He said that's the way it works in this world. He says, and their high officials exercise authority. It will not be this way with you. And he's not just talking to them, he's talking to us. That's why, okay, this is a side thing too. That's part of why the Protestant reformers had issues with the Catholic Church. They had a lot of other issues with the Catholic Church, but one of them was this power hierarchy because Jesus said, this is not the way it works in the kingdom of God. So he goes on and he says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem, but remember the night before he dies, the whole washing of the feet? He's still trying to get over their pride. So this is a big problem with the disciples, is this idea of their pride and their ambition and their rivalry with one another. And you'll see Jesus over and over trying to hammer into them that pride is absolutely a disqualifier. It's a killer for Christians. It's a killer for Christian leaders. Is pride is the great thing. Lack of knowledge can be fixed. Your trust really matters, but it's hard to really have faith when you have pride that has basically consumed you. And that's what Jesus is seeing. I often think to myself, Jesus has to just be so put out. Like, I spent three years with you guys. Maybe I picked wrong. Unfortunately, it's too late to pick again. You know, I'm joking, of course. He knows who he's dealing with. But the point is, he realizes your flaw is not what you don't know. Your flaw is that you need to surrender. Remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, he says this, if any of you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What's that talking about? It's all about pride. It's all about surrender. In other words, if you want to follow me, first thing you have to do is deny yourself, your selfish interest, your pride, your ambition, your envy. That's why the New Testament talks about all those things. When you get vice lists, or in other words, this is not what Christians are like, lists that say this is not what we do, along with sexual immorality, what you typically see are envy, jealousy, pride, gossip, slander, anger. All those things are, are anathema to a Christian. In other words, it's a sign that we have not surrendered ourself. And that's what Jesus is working with them on. So think about what they're planning, they think they're seeing with Jesus. They've seen, I want to close this uh, up, with a shift. Jesus has shown them his power, and Mark spent eight chapters detailing all these things Jesus can do. The demons listen to him. The earth literally obeys him. 
he can heal people, literally changing the shape of their limbs and healing them. I mean, this guy is, whoa, this is power. And so he's got all this power. Now look what happens. He says to them, but I didn't come here to be served. You notice, I don't have a house. I don't have anything. I sleep out in the open with you guys. I have no 401k whatsoever, right? I mean, bottom line is, he said, look, if I'm the king of the universe, and he is, look how I've been living. I didn't come here so a bunch of people could come wait on me. So even though he's got this power, he's trying to teach them that he really comes in the form of a servant. I want to give you, I put this whole chapter up here. This is Isaiah chapter 53. This is Isaiah talking about the Messiah. Isaiah 53, Isaiah is written about 700 years before Jesus. But you know this passage and listen to it. This is a description of the Messiah, along with the description of the Messiah as a king. Uh, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He took our infirmities, he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that came on him brought peace for us. By his wounds we are healed. We've all gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him all of our sins. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't even open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he didn't say a thing. He took the judgment. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And I'll just leave it at that. That whole chapter is describing the Messiah. Well, they've seen the Messiah because they believe he's the Messiah at this point. They've seen the power, and now what is he teaching him? He's saying, and power is perfected in weakness. That's what Paul's going to say later. Think about 2 Corinthians 12. I want you to, I'm saying these things because I want you to see the connections. All of your New Testament is saying the same thing. It's all connected. Remember when Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he prays to God. He said, look, I've touched people and healed them. Uh, but I got this back problem or something. Yeah, he's got this problem that's keeping him from preaching, and he prays three times for God to heal him, and God says, no, my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul, being faithful, says, well, in that case, I'll just start bragging about my weakness then. In other words, if it gives you glory and your power is perfected in my weakness, then I'll just go preach about my weakness. That's the antithesis of pride. And so the, what you see, the prophecies of the Messiah, everything now in the second half of Mark is going to be about Jesus serving, suffering, voluntarily laying his life down. That is an unbelievable contrast. Hopefully you can see why it's so hard to get your arms around this Jesus. Sometimes we want Jesus the miracle worker. We want Jesus that's powerful, and he is. And he's also the suffering servant. He's also the one who lays down his power to serve others, only to pick it up in glory. That is a, also a uniquely Christian idea because it is what Christ did. And so he's redefining what real power looks like. If you get somebody like a Gandhi or somebody like Buddha, you can teach this same lesson but it's not very authentic. And here's what I mean by that. 
So Gandhi comes, and, uh, and I'm not trying to badmouth these people, but what I'm saying is he comes and he says, uh, love is the way, nonviolence is the way. He goes on hunger strikes. You know, he doesn't pick up a gun and shoot anybody. What's he teaching? He's teaching that peace and love overcome hate. Here's the problem. He has no power. He has no choice. He may be right about that, but you can't tell that he's right about that. The difference is Jesus has a choice. If you can exercise power over nature and the demons and everything else, you could do a little smiting to your enemies, right? You could look at the cross and go, I don't think so. In fact, I think you guys are all dead. He has power. He chooses to lay it down. That's exactly what Christians are called to do. That's exactly what Christ calls us to do. Our power doesn't please God unless we use our power to serve the little children of the world. I'm speaking metaphorically. Those who are innocent in their faith, those who have no one to protect them, those who are oppressed. Jesus is showing the proper use of power. Does that make sense? All of you have power. You have economic power, you have social power, I mean, you have power in many other ways as well. Jesus is teaching us something profound about our lives. He's saying the only legitimate use of your power is not to feed our pride, it is to serve. And he is the ultimate example of that. So as you leave this section, again, next week, he's going to turn toward Jerusalem, and we're going to play out uh, the rest of this prophecy but here, literally in the middle, remember I told you, in the middle of Mark is the most important stuff. Eight chapters showing you his power. Now the next eight chapters are going to show you how to lay down power, or more accurately, how to use power as a servant. That's a lesson for us. Think about that some this week. Think about the fact that you actually have power. First of all, you're Americans. You're rich relative to the rest of the world. But you have the power to encourage, you have the power to discourage with your words. You have the power to build up, you have the power to tear down. On social media, you have tons of power. You can say all kinds of things there. My point is, Jesus, what's really happening here and the essential message is the proper use of power. It's not to feed our pride, it's to build up those around us. Does that make sense? That's your assignment. So if you would all email me something encouraging this week, I'd feel like we really got this lesson done. Okay, I made that up. You do not need to email me anything encouraging. But seriously, think about how powerful you are. Think about how you're going to choose to use that power in your family, in your workplace, and everywhere you go this week. Okay? Next week, we go to Jerusalem. See you guys.